98K News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Sean Kennedy. Tonight's headlines. Former lawmaker Ted Hoy says he's gone into exile but won't be seeking asylum anywhere. The Democratic Party says it accepts his resignation and wishes him and his family peace and safety. And media tycoon Jimmy Lai is to remain behind bars for at least the next four months ahead of his fraud trial. Former Democratic Party legislator Ted Hoy says he's gone into exile and won't be returning to Hong Kong. He made the announcement from Denmark, where he travelled to earlier this week. He says he won't come, be seeking asylum anywhere because Hong Kong is still his home. Candace Wong reports. Ted Hoy is the second former pro-democracy lawmaker to flee Hong Kong since the imposition of the national security law earlier this year. Nathan Law was the first to go, surfacing in the UK shortly after the new law was implemented at the end of June. Mr Hoy issued a statement saying there are no words to express the pain he feels, but his statement notes that he faces a number of criminal charges over protest-related activities that could land him in jail for years. Noting the recent jail terms meted out to activists Joshua Wong, Agnes Chow and Ivan Lam, Mr Hoy said... Quote, Since leaving Hong Kong, I heard the news of more and more of my friends and freedom fighters being thrown to jail. Since the national security law, we have fallen into the darkness of the CCP tyranny, and it breaks my heart to hear the fate of many of my friends. Unquote. Before he made his exile announcement, the former lawmaker had said in an interview with Danish media that he wasn't exaggerating when he says he's risking his life by talking about human rights situation in Hong Kong. Of course, uh, my family is involved and after the law is enacted, my family has been followed, been surveyed. There are people stalking them and my whole family feel that it's very threatening. Mm. So I understand if I go back to Hong Kong, there can be very, very serious consequences. I expect mm. arrest, maybe in the airport or immediately. He said he would be heading for the UK in the near future, but he left his future plans vague, saying he would not be applying for asylum anywhere. My personal determination is that my exile will not be a migration. My only home is Hong Kong, he stressed. The Democratic Party said it respects Hoy's decision and accepts his withdrawal from the party. Apple Daily founder Jimmy Lai has been denied bail after appearing in court over allegations of fraud. He'll spend the next four months in detention before his case is heard again in April. Wendy Wong reports. Jimmy Lai and two senior executives from Next Digital are accused of using the company's headquarters in Chongkwono for purposes not permitted by the lease signed with Hong Kong Science Park in 1995. The prosecution alleges that Mr Lai, Administrative Director Wong Wai Kung and Chief Operating Officer Ron Sun Chow allowed another company owned by the media tycoon to run businesses from the headquarters, saving them $20 million in rent over more than two decades. Prosecutors alleged Mr Lai would have been likely to abscond, claiming he has spent much of his time outside Hong Kong in recent years and has no local connections. Mr Wong and Mr Chow were released on bail following the hearing, during which the prosecution said it needed more time to look at relevant bank accounts and transaction records. Chief Magistrate So Wai Tat set bail for Mr Wong and Mr Chow at $100,000 and $200,000 respectively and ordered them not to leave Hong Kong. The three men were detained on Wednesday after reporting to police following their arrests back in August by officers from the Forces National Security Department. Prosecutors said although the trio face fraud charges at the moment, there is still a chance they could be charged with offences under the national security law.
An inquest into the death of university student Charles Locke during last year's anti-government protests heard today that a very important image has been found on security camera footage. That prompted the coroner to adjourn the hearing. Richard Pine has details. Coroner David Coe said footage shot from outside Kuangming Court in Chengkwano, opposite the street from the car park where Chao Chi Lok was found to be seriously hurt in the small hours of November the 4th, 2019, contained the image that may affect the testimony of upcoming expert witnesses. Mr. Coe said he found the image after going through security camera footage that had not been shown in court. Meanwhile, an emergency doctor who treated Chow said he might have lost consciousness before he was found lying in the car park. Dr. Ray Lung from Queen Elizabeth Hospital told the coroner that people would normally use their arms to protect their bodies in a fall, but that there were no bruises on Chow's limbs. You're tuned to RTHK. The time is five minutes past 11. A judge designated to handle national security cases will handle the expected trial of People Power leader Tam Tak Chi. The activist is alleged to have chanted seditious slogans but hasn't been charged with an offence under the national security law. Violet Wong reports. Stanley Chan, a judge handpicked by Chief Executive Carrie Lam to hear national security cases, has chosen to preside over Tam Tak Chi's upcoming case. The decision comes after the Department of Justice said the People Power leader's alleged offences could fall within the ambit of the national security law. He hasn't been charged with an offence under that law and stands accused of chanting seditious slogans and encouraging other people to do so too. Justice Chen said he agreed with Chief District Judge Justin Koh that a normal judge could be acting beyond their powers after prosecutors alleged that Mr. Tam's chance, including Hong Kong independence, the only way out, were subversive. The judge noted that he can continue to handle the case even if the defense's request for a district judge is granted because he also sits at the district court. Mr. Tam's barrister Philip Dykes accepted the arrangement but said he would raise any issues with the court in future. The case was adjourned to March the 31st to decide if the proceedings should be dropped as per the defence's request. If the application is denied, a five-day trial is scheduled to take place in May. Mr Tam was once again remanded in custody, where he has been since his arrest on September the 6th. The High Court has sentenced former University of Hong Kong professor Chang Ki Chung to life imprisonment for what it described as the cold-blooded murder of his wife. Francis Sit reports. The 56-year-old Chang Ki Chung appeared calm when he heard his sentence, gesturing towards several friends before being escorted away from the courtroom. A seven-member High Court jury convicted Chung last week of the murder of his wife, Chen Man Wai, in August 2018. The former associate professor of mechanical engineering was arrested when Ms. Chen's body was found inside a suitcase hidden in a sealed wooden box in his office. Her body was taken there after she had been strangled in the bedroom room of the couple's home on the Hong Kong University campus. Handing down the sentence, Josh Anthea Penn said even though many have described Jung as a gentle and caring person, he had cold-bloodedly killed his wife, to whom he was married for over 30 years. She called the case a tragedy for him, the deceased and their family. Cheng had previously pleaded not guilty to murder but admitted manslaughter, with his lawyers arguing that he had been suffering from depression and had only strangled his wife with power cords after she had provoked him. Cheng also received a 28-month jail sentence for preventing a lawful burial by hiding his wife's corpse in the wooden box. 
The Education Bureau says it's made what are called law-abidingness and empathy core values for all local schools and it's directed primary and secondary institutions to strengthen the implementation of values education on campus. A spokesman said schools were informed of the new policy in a memo, adding that adhering to law and order is a basic civic duty and students should respect different views to help create a harmonious and caring society. The president of the professional teachers' union, Fung Wai Wa, called the move politically motivated, noting that students already learn these values under the existing curriculum. He says he's worried that schools may feel pressured by the notices. I just uh, wonder how they will teach these two aspects. Because uh, if they just teach students to uh, follow legal consideration as the only consideration while making decisions, it is not quite appropriate. And also for empathy, if they just emphasize on, they have to respect the opinion of the um, post-assessment scan or from the government's view, I think it may be one-sided. The heads of the iCable News Department said the, go- the company has promised not to lay off any more staff or cut their wages over the next two years. This came two days after the News Department sacked a 40 employees, citing financial difficulties. Vicky Wong has more. In a statement, the news managers acknowledged that the way the firings were handled wasn't perfect. They said they should have communicated better with the various section heads before making the decisions. The four managers, Edna Tse, Ho Fong Fei, Oscar Lee and Anderson Chan, said they've already done their best to minimise the impact of the company's restructuring, adding that the list of staff to be sacked was compiled by themselves along with colleagues from the Human Resources Department. The managers also said the company's management has made free promises not to change the editorial direction of iCable News, not to lay off or cut the wages of staff over the next two years and to promote colleagues who perform well. The news managers also apologised for what were said to be offensive remarks made during the saga. On Tuesday, some staff were angry with Mr Chan's comments that they were negotiating like thugs. The sacking of 40 employees, including journalists, camera operators and production workers, triggered the resignation of several section heads, the entire China desk and more than 10 local reporters in protest. iCable said it's under a great deal of financial pressure due to recent social conditions and the pandemic. Health officials have reported 90 new COVID-19 cases, 79 are local and of these, officials couldn't trace the source for 31 infections. Dr Chuang Shukwan from the Centre for Health Protection says this suggests that people carrying the virus are passing it on unknowingly in the community, making it very difficult to find those infected. There are silent carriers in the community and then they may have infected other patients in the community through other means. For example, they go to the same restaurants or same markets and other places they forgot. Authorities also announced the death of another COVID patient. An 82-year-old woman died at Queen Elizabeth Hospital two days after she was admitted to its intensive care unit with fever and pneumonia. She was later confirmed with the coronavirus. This brings the total number of COVID-related deaths in Hong Kong to 111. The Centre for Health Protection says it's asked 19 people to have new COVID-19 tests after their deep throat saliva samples were contaminated. It said the problem appeared to involve a tainted reagent and apologised for the incident. An infectious disease expert says a government proposal to raise the fine for those who violate social distancing regulations from $2,000 to $10,000 is not fair to the poor. Dr Leung Chi Chu told Damon Pang that instead of raising fines, the government should step up law enforcement instead. 
I think it's important that we enforce the law before saying that the penalty is not enough. $2,000 may not be a small amount for those segments of our society with a low income, especially for our domestic helpers. And if we increase the amount to a very high level such that they cannot pay, there may be a question whether we are fair to them because they will be selectively prosecuted and could be facing harsher sentences, including imprisonment. And that raises a serious question, especially in regard to the domestic helpers who are those with the lowest income in Hong Kong. Overseas, and the mayor of Moscow has announced the launch of a program to vaccinate people against coronavirus using the Russian-made Sputnik V vaccine. Sergei Sobyanin said the first jobs jabs would be given on Saturday. It comes a day after President Putin ordered the start of a mass vaccination program. The BBC's Sarah Rainsford reports from Moscow. With close to 8,000 new cases of coronavirus detected in Moscow today and the Kremlin ruling out an unpopular lockdown, the need for an effective vaccine is urgent. The desire for a world first is also clear here. So the vaccine rollout will begin even though mass trials of Sputnik V for safety and efficacy are still underway. The developers do claim that it protects 95% of people, but that's based on interim data only. The reported side effects, though, do appear comparable with other COVID vaccines. Iran, the Middle East country hardest hit by the pandemic, has passed the one million mark in officially recorded infections. The virus has officially claimed just under 50,000 lives, which Iran's health minister admits is well short of the real figure. But the daily death rate has been falling lately, having stayed above 400 for most of November. Authorities in the United States have announced they'll block imports of cotton they say are harvested with slave labour in China's Xinjiang region. The new rule allows customs officials to detain shipments containing cotton originating from the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps, a major paramilitary group already sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury. Beijing responded by accusing the United States of fabricating fake news of so-called forced labour and attempting to oppress Xinjiang businesses. China has come under intense international criticism for its policies in Xinjiang, where rights groups say as many as a million Uyghurs and other mostly Muslim minorities are being held in internment camps. And a reminder of our top stories tonight. Former lawmaker Ted Hoy says he's gone into exile but won't be seeking asylum anywhere. The Democratic Party says it accepts his resignation and wishes him and his family peace and safety. And media tycoon Jimmy Lai is to remain behind bars for at least the next four months ahead of his fraud trial. The news from RTHK. RTHK Radio 3 it's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's Newswrap programme. Prominent legal scholar Eric Chung has criticised the sentences handed down to pro-democracy activists Joshua Wong, Agnes Chow and Ivan Lam yesterday, arguing they were disproportionately heavy. The trio were given jail terms ranging from 7 to 13 and a half months over a siege of the police headquarters in June last year. Mr Chung says the magistrate appears to have taken into consideration factors that she shouldn't have. The University of Hong Kong scholar spoke to Damon Pang. They were only charged with the lesser offence of unauthorised assembly, not unlawful assembly. For unauthorised assembly, basically, there's no element of any disorderly behaviour or violent behaviour. But for unlawful assembly, 
prosecution has to prove that there was some disorderly behavior which would likely cause a breach of the peace. Or put it simply, because they were charged of unauthorized family only. That means the prosecution has no evidence to show that they were engaged in any disorderly behavior, so there's no non-peaceful behavior. If so, then it might be wrong for the magistrate to take into account the violent or non-peaceful elements in sensing them. But the charges involving the three, some of them involve an incitement element. And the magistrate also talked about the element of joint enterprise of the three. It, it doesn't matter because the substantive offence is still one of an off-right assembly, which is a peaceful assembly. So the inchoate offence of incitement, organising, etc., I still focus on the substantive offence of an offer assembly. So the court in sentencing had to take into account the fact that a peaceful demonstration is still protected by the constitutional right for freedom of expression. A pharmacist group says Hong Kong should follow in the footsteps of the UK and f- seek emergency approval of a coronavirus vaccine that's made by drug makers Pfizer and BioNTech. Early clinical trials have shown it to be 95% effective and a mass vaccination program is due to begin within days in the UK. The president of the Society of Hospital Pharmacists of Hong Kong, William Choi, says although the SAR would likely not receive any shipments anytime soon, authorities should try to secure different types of vaccines from different sources at the same time, including from the mainland. He told Candace Wong the advantage of not getting the first batch of new vaccines is that we can see how effective they are first. There's no, you know, no time to just sit down and wait. So I think the first, at least the first batch of the mRNA vaccine well, would be delivered to the Western country instead of Hong Kong. Although we also place pre-order, but because you know the drug manufacturer, they are located at the US or European countries. That's why the priority is given to the Western country instead of the Hong Kong. So they have to speed up the approval process. Uh, and uh, regarding this kind of pandemic, COVID-19 vaccine as a emergency use instead of just regular uh, registration of the drugs. Then would it be too late then by the time that Hong Kong residents and people here could get the vaccine? It is good to know that the uh, UK people have the vaccine first to see any, any problem, any safety problem, any efficacy problem. So I think we can wait. So I I believe uh, the Hong Kong people can be injected with the vaccine by the end of 2021. Yeah. But um, Hong Kong would not be the first among the world to get the vaccines, though. And you do think that is a good thing? Yeah, because uh, because the data, the clinical data, actually is a preliminary data. They haven't gone through the peer review or they, they haven't published in the medical journal with impact factor. So that's why we have still have time to wait several months. Are you still worried about the efficacy, safety and effectiveness of the vaccine when you say uh, UK people should be the first to try whether these vaccines work? I mean, do you have worries of these vaccines? First of all, I, have, I am confident that the, the regulatory, uh, gov- uh, regulatory body of the different Western country or the China government, they have the um, uh, regular, uh, regular procedure to approve or to, do, to use vaccine for emergency use. I believe because 
now the world, the global is become more and more, and more transparent. So I think the chance to, you know, to undercover the information or the chance to, you know, uh, hiding something is very difficult nowadays. So that's why I think I, I'm confident the international COVID vaccine made by the Western country or the the, main, uh, the, the, the manufacturer from the mainland China, uh, they know that everybody looking at them. So that's why they will, they will do their best to make sure the vaccine are safe. Iran's parliament has approved a law requiring the government to stop UN inspections of its nuclear sites and to step up uranium enrichment beyond limits set under a 2015 nuclear deal if crippling sanctions aren't eased in two months. The approval came after last week's killing of the country's top nuclear scientist, which Tehran has blamed on Israel. Paul Rogers, Professor of Peace Studies at Bradford University in the UK, told Anna-Marie Evans that the move could increase tensions very rapidly. There's a lot of concern that the United States, or more likely Israel, could take military action against Iran, uh, given the opportunity before uh, President Trump leaves office. So the indications are that this is almost a, a provocation. And in fact, the president of Iran has uh, criticized it uh, against his own parliament. But the point is that this particular law sets a timetable of two months. So basically what it does is to say to the European members of the Iran nuclear agreement that they must work very hard to decrease the impact of the sanctions, particularly the American ones, over two months. So there's a deadline being set. And I think in some ways this is quite clever as some of the Iranian politicians because they know full well that that will take us through to what, two or three weeks after uh, Mr. Trump leaves office and, and President Joe Biden, President-elect Joe Biden comes in. So it's a way of putting pressure on the Europeans uh, indirectly, of course, on the United States. It is, in my view, this still, still quite dangerous because we're in very uncertain times and the Israelis know full well uh, that Biden will be much more cautious in his dealings with Iran and will want to repair the relations which is, it is believed were damaged when Trump pulled out of the agreement, what, three or four years ago. So on balance, this is a very interesting development. It is fraught with some tensions, but in, the, in, in a political sense, you can see what the Iranians are trying to get at. Now, can you describe to me some of these Western sanctions and how long have they been in place? Well, they've been in place variably since about 2010. Uh, many of them have been, have been directed at individuals. Uh, many more have been direct, directed at particular items, particularly technology items and medicines as well. Uh, but there have been broader sanctions from the United States. And the tricky thing is here, the United States basically sanctions uh, companies across the world that are actually dealing with Iran on a wide range of issues. In other words, companies are actually uh, discouraged strongly from even dealing economically with Iran, and that is what's caused the real trouble. Another problem has been the specific uh, forbidding of spare parts going, for example, to aircraft, Western aircraft. And this means that the Iranian Air Force and, more importantly, the civil airliners have trouble maintaining their own planes. Overall, the economic impacts have been really very considerable. And they're damaging Iran and holding back the development of the country and certainly increasing unemployment. 
and it is really the American ones which are at the heart of this. The Iranians want this treaty back on the on the table. All the other countries sign up to it. It's only the Americans who are withdrawn. So the British, the French, the Germans, the Russians, the Chinese are still on board, and of course Iran is. So it's really an indirect way of putting pressure on the on the Europeans to do something quickly, but with this proviso that it only runs out after Biden has already come in, and that I think is the rather more clever aspect of it. Now it's interesting that. President Rouhani is disagreeing with his own parliament. It is, but he believes that it is the diplomatic route that one should take. Uh, on the other hand, there's a lot of anger still in Iran at the killing of the key nuclear scientist, uh, what, just about two weeks ago. And I think this is a reflection of the public mood as well. But it means that the hardliners, while they can, really want, want to up the ante in terms of speaking up for Iran in its well position. Uh, but this is tricky because it does give Trump and the Israelis an opportunity to take further action. And I think Rouhani would say, let's let this rest. Let's see the pre present period through. It's only, what, June, January the 22nd when Biden comes in, then things may change. But unfortunately, he's lost this particular battle, which is more about the inter internal factionalization in Iranian politics than anything else. So how do you anticipate that Israel could use this? Well, there is the risk, it's a small risk, that the Israelis might decide to take preemptive military action. Uh, there was this fear a number of years ago, but it didn't come to anything. From basically Netanyahu's point of view, um, the loss of the Trump administration in the United States is a pretty grievous blow uh, to Israel's perception of its own security, at least the current government's perception of its own security. And as a consequence of this, I think the Israelis may take further action the problem is that anything which really ups the ante might be popular in Israel, it might be popular in some quarters in the United States, but the American military are very, very chary about this. They feel that once you have any kind of war involved uh, between Israel and Iran, it would drag the United States in and it could then spread in really quite unpredictable ways. So it's a very mixed message, message at present. But overall, I think, uh, let me put it this way, detached diplomatic observers would want to see any avoidance of further tensions because this is a very tricky time. Schools across the city have suspended classes for the rest of the year as a precaution against COVID-19. The kids are still having classes online ahead of the winter break. It's something most have gotten used to. They've had months of online learning during previous COVID spikes. But is learning through a computer screen really comparable with the real thing? And do underprivileged students find it harder to keep up because they don't have fast computers or internet connections? RTHK's Violet Wong found out what learning at a distance is like for two students who live in a subdivided flat. Within a small square on a computer screen, Anne's home doesn't look much different from anyone else's, unless you look a bit closer. Because the paint on the wall is peeling off, and I don't want others to see that. I felt a bit embarrassed, so I stuck wallpaper over it. Her desk is a small folding tray, her classroom, her bunk bed, which is right above that of cousin Lara's. Lara's in secondary three, one year above Anne. But being on the bottom bunk has its own challenges. This fluorescent tube is very bright. I can stick it onto the bed railing. It usually turns off automatically around noon, probably because the battery dies. Then I will need to go out and get the power bank and the cable and charge the light. So I can turn it back on or it will be so dark. They both have tablet computers that their church got them via a charity. 
they are not very big, and sometimes there's a bit of lag. But Anne says it's already much better than before. Where she had to use her mobile phone. The screen of my mobile phone is too small, and I can't see things clearly during lessons. The iPad has a large screen, so it's more convenient. You may think it's not so bad attending class and doing your homework in bed, but Laura says one of the biggest problems is resisting the urge to lie down. Sometimes I get very tired doing my homework, and I want to lie down. But once I do, I'll take a long nap, like until 6 p.m., and then I'd remember, oh, I haven't finished my work. While the cousins have made do with their slower tablets and a cramped learning environment, their grades have suffered. Both say they much prefer face-to-face -face classes, when teachers can directly answer questions, and they have access to free tutorial classes given by their church. Lara says, with her tutor's help, she can score around 70 out of 100 in her maths tests. But when she had to go without during the last round of online learning, she could barely pass. Some of her more well-off classmates may have private tutors, but her family can't afford that luxury. And is also worried that her grades will start falling again as online classes resume. After going back to school for a week, we learned much faster than having online lessons. Math is the subject I find the hardest, and I can ask my teachers questions in person without having to wait for a reply online, so I can solve my problems quickly. For Anne, it's not just being stuck learning at home that's difficult. She's a cross-country runner. But all training has now stopped. Now, due to the pandemic, the coach has asked us to do stretching at home or other exercises so we can run faster. But working out in her 120 square feet home can be a challenge. I'm afraid I will bump my head if I lie down. But she says she won't worry too much about racing for now. Her top priority is to find a way to keep up with her studies. She's hoping her school will provide extra tutorial classes. Even if that means more hours hunched on a bed in front of her white wallpaper, covering up the cracks in her wall. Those stories were part of the news wrap program, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. Amid the epidemic, thanks to all for being self-disciplined to protect yourselves and others. Thanks for keeping up personal and environmental hygiene and contributing to fighting the virus. We must take further steps. Keep track of your whereabouts. If you are sick, don't go to work or school. See the doctor and get tested promptly. We will prevail over the epidemic. Visit coronavirus.gov.hk for details. Fight, Fight the, the virus. virus. Stay, Stay vigilant. vigilant. Radio Three Weather. A look at the weather forecast for tonight and tomorrow: fine and dry, rather cool in the morning. Minimum temperature will be around 14 degrees in town, and it'll be a couple of degrees lower in the new territories. Maximum temperature will be around 20 degrees during the day, and winds will be moderate to fresh northerly, occasionally strong offshore at first. The outlook: fine and dry in the following couple of days, remaining cool in the morning. Temperature difference between day and night will be relatively large. Currently, the air quality health index here in Hong Kong is low, which means the air quality is good. The readings three at both stations. At the observatory, the air temperature remains 16 degrees Celsius. Relative humidity is 66 percent.
started for this section of the show that's Simon and Garfunkel Scarborough Fair Cantile I'm Simon Wilson sitting in for Uncle Ray the world's most durable DJ sheltering in place during this current Covid spike and we'll hopefully be back with you on Monday in the meantime it's assorted ballads and easy listening instead of all the way with Ray it's some of the way with Simon for a chilly night as the snow flies On a cold and grey Chicago morning A poor little baby child is born in the ghetto In the ghetto 